and it'll be encouraging, but before I go too much further, let's do what we do. Hold up your Bibles if you have them. I'm a child of God. Have in my hand the powerful Word of God. Can change lives, heal broken hearts, save man's soul. Here's our prayer. Lord Jesus, today, speak to me. In Jesus' name, amen. High five, fist pound your neighbor. Let them know you love them. Uh, we want to be an Ephesians 4 church. We want to be a church that speaks wholesome words, words that edify, words that encourage, words that are laced with grace, mercy, and compassion and kindness. There's plenty of the other out there, but let's be an Ephesians 4 church that lifts up good words, powerful words, encouraging words. So when we see each other, you love them, hug them, and let's encourage each other. And sarcasm never comes out right. Have you discovered that? Even though you intend it to be funny, you intend it to not inflict harm, people don't receive it well, so let's just don't go there. What did your mother say? If you can't say something good? Oh, your mother told you the same thing, mine, dear. All right. So she must be right. <laughs> so there you go. Let's be that kind of church. Amen? Our job as a, as a church is to love people. We're not to get in their business. We're not, to, we're not to judge them in any way. We're just simply to love them. And we need to love people. And I love you. And I know that you love me. And uh, it, 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 it's just awesome to be in a, a church that people love each other. But today's topic is going to be touchy. Uh, you may have experienced this idea, this situation in your life. You may have someone very close to you that has. But we're going to deal with the sanctity of human life. And I think the first place we need to go is in the Word of God. We need to see and experience what God says about this topic. The first thing we need to understand from Genesis 1.27, we need to understand that life is, human life is sacred. After God created all the, of creation... All the animals, they were made, fashioned, the fowl of the air, the beasts of the field, the creatures of the sea. He then created humans, male and female, and he created them in his own image. So he gave us a step up from the rest of creation. That's how much he loved us. And because we're created in the image of God... Human life is unique. It's holy. And not only is human life sacred, but Scripture is abundantly clear that life begins at conception. That seems to be the argument today is when does life begin? Well, let's share some Scripture together. Psalm 22, 9 and 10 says this, Yet you brought me safely from my mother's womb, led me to trust you at my mother's breast, I was thrust into your arms at my birth. You have been my God from the moment I was born. Psalm 139. You made, uh, beginning at verse uh, 13. You made all the delicate inner parts of my body and knit me together in my mother's womb. Can you see the creation in that verse? Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. 
You watched me as I was being formed in utter seclusion, as I was woven together in the dark of the womb. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. Did you get that? The psalmist is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he tells us that God knew him in the womb. God formed his parts, knew his days, saw his unformed substance. How can you or how can anyone read that passage and say that a fetus is nothing more than a cellular blob? Cellular blobs don't have brain waves, don't have beating hearts. They have active nerve endings. Unborn children, according to Psalm 139, are human beings known by God. Isaiah 44, verse 2. The Lord who made you and helps you says, Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant. O dear Israel, my chosen one. Isaiah 44, 24. This is what the Lord says, Your Redeemer and Creator, I am the Lord who made all things. Jeremiah 1, 5. We read it earlier. Powerful verse. Before I... I formed you in the womb. I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. He knew us before we were created. <laughs> it wouldn't it behoove us to surrender to the man that made us. Because <laughs> the sooner we learn to do that, the better life is. When you learn to submit to authority. Why do, why do children have parents? Parents are the first line to teach children authority and submission to it. But we've got parents today that have abdicated that. I just want to be their best friend. You weren't called to be their friend. You were called to be their parent. So you beat them within a half inch of their life. Oh, I'm sorry. That's the wrong crap. Excuse me. No. No, you pray for them, don't you? With your hand around their neck. No, oh, I'm in the wrong crowd again. Oh, <clears throat> yeah, that's my, my, my mother's approach. <laughs> I'm kind of like John Hagee. I've got a drug problem. I was drugged to church, drugged to Sunday school, drugged to Sunday night. Yeah. God knew me. Knew me before I was even in existence. So to take the life of an unborn child would be killing that child. In Exodus 20 and 13 it says, You shall not kill. Proverbs 6.17 tells us that among the seven things which are an abomination to the Lord, hands that shed innocent blood, I think children would be considered innocent blood. Shouldn't be allowed. You go through the Old Testament and you'll find over and over again, God condemning the Canaanites and other inhabitants of the land of Canaan for sacrificing their children to their pagan gods. I think it's clearly clear to see that God is against abortion. He sees it as an abomination, uh, as a a total abomination uh, before uh, God. And so we need to understand that. That's the fun part about this right here. Thank you. Let me get back to my message. (laughs) These electronic things are wonderful if, they, if the, the user knows how to work them right. So, But if you go through the Old Testament, you'll see that God had something to say about uh, the killing of children. But we're not the only generation of Christians to recognize that truth. In the ancient Roman Empire, abortion and infanticide were common practices 
a book written by Leslie and Roy Adkins titled Handbook to Life in Ancient Rome. I bring this quote from that book. Newborn children could be killed, sold, or exposed. Exposure which involved leaving a child unfed and open to the elements usually took place outside the home or in a public place and deformed children were exposed or drowned. It's interesting to note that these practices in the Roman Empire were not outlawed until 374 A.D. when Christianity was solidly beginning to have moral influence on this pagan empire. The early church fathers stood strongly against abortion. In the second century epistle of Barnabas, an early church writer, he wrote, You shall love your neighbor more than you, uh, your own life. You shall not slay a child by abortion. You shall not kill that which has already been generated. The Didache, a second century catechism for young Christians, the church said, Do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Athenagoras, in his work, A Plea for the Christians, writing in 177 A.D., said the fetus is the womb, uh, in the womb is a living being and therefore the object of God's care. Until the second half of the, of the last century, abortion was illegal in the United States. But on January 22nd, 1973, the United States Supreme Court legalized abortion when it handed down that landmark decision, Roe versus Wade. Norma Covey was the lady that was involved in this lawsuit. She now is a Christian. She now preaches against abortion. And if you don't believe it, look her up. Norma Covey, she's powerful testimony. And she's the very one that this law was based on. The court said, the Supreme Court said that an unborn child is neither a human nor a person. And therefore, because it's, it is not a person, it is not protected under the Constitution. According to the highest court of our land, a fetus is not seen as a separate entity in itself, but merely functions as an appendage of the mother's body. Both this historic decision and definition of what an unborn baby is opened the floodgates for the most horrific mass murder in the history of the world. More than the Holocaust from Hitler. Since 1973, 45 to 50 million babies have been killed by abortion with beating hearts and brain waves who were never given a chance at life. Babies who no fault of their own were sentenced to death because they were inconvenient. So I guess the obvious question is, how, how, do, how do we as a nation drift so far away from the morality which characterized the faith of our founding fathers? Where did we go wrong? Well, in his book, Christian Counter Moves in a Decadent Culture, the late Carl H.F. Henry said this, are modern exponents of abortion on demand less barbaric than their pagan Roman counterparts because their methods of discarding infant life with the medical trash seem more sophisticated? Begs the question. If after 2,000 years of Christianity, our culture has reverted back to a pagan view of life, where has the church failed? Where have we went wrong? The scripture is clear that as people of God in a fallen and dying world, we are to be salt and light. 
We are to communicate the truth of God, which will shed the only true light in a sense in the sea of darkness. And as we live out our lives and our convictions and demonstrate the difference that Jesus makes in our life, we become that salt, like salt on a meat, having a preserving influence on the culture around us. But the problem of abortion and the seeming inability of the church to stem the tide of that evil is merely a symptom of a much deeper-rooted problem. Ronald Sider wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. That's going to get kind of deep through this section, but stay with me. Our first concern, Sider said, must be internal integrity, not external danger. So before we can address the dangers of the culture around us, we must make sure that we, as the people of God, are who we say we are, and we are thinking as we should be thinking, and we are living as we should be called to live. He goes on to say that, What a tragedy for evangelicals to declare proudly that personal conviction, conversion and new birth in Christ are at the center of their faith and then to defy biblical moral standards by living almost as sinfully as their pagan neighbors. We have as many divorces in the church as we do outside the church. We have as many affairs going on in the church as we do outside the church. (coughs) How do I know? Watch the TV. How many big time preachers you see false spiritually or sexually because... Of, of, of not being able to control themselves. It's unbelievable. We're not any different than the world is. So why in the world should they listen to our message? We've got to change how we are. We can't keep living like the world is. He didn't call us to live like the world. He called us to live like Jesus. And the more we live like Jesus, the better it becomes. Boy, and that's in everything. Your taxes <laughs> and your... Oh, I've done slipped off the edge there, have I? You think we're taxed heavy? Oh my goodness. You should have lived back in the Bible days. But you see, the change came and the church lost its influence because we changed the way we think. We changed the way we think. Parents with kids going to college. Parents with kids in high school. Please hear the rest of what I'm going to say right here. You see, the worldview... How we think about the world around us is very important. Western culture over the last couple of centuries, and in the last half a century in particular, has moved away from a worldview in which God is at the center and moved to a worldview in which man is at the center. You can ask any of our coaches. They can't coach today the way they coached 10 years ago. If you grab a player's face mask, like my coaches did, and shake my head till I can't see straight. I could sue that coach and win. When I was in school, if we got in trouble and we were a football player or any athlete, we got sent to the principal's office, down to the basement in a dim-lit room with heels on a line, holding a chair so that they could pray with us. And those were some loud prayers too, brother. About 10 of them, as a matter of fact. I was saying amen after every one of them. <laughs> and when the last one came, I was glory. And, and then that day at practice was even more fun. For some, somebody told the coaches that I got in trouble. I, I wanted to find out who that was. Only to find out that the guy administering the prayer... <laughs> was one of the coaches. 
Trust me, I never ended up in that spot again. But we don't have that today. Cider in the, in, the cha- in the chapter in his book, Conforming to Culture or Being the Church, is an explanation of how, how to change people and how that took place. He says, for almost 1,500 years, Western civilization had been grounded in a shared conviction that God at the center of reality was the source of moral norms, governmental authority, truth, and beauty. But in the 18th century, leading thinkers began to argue that the ever more successful scientific project would make the hypothesis of God unnecessary. Nothing exists, they argued, except the material world described with ever greater scientific precision. So the individual replaced God at the center of reality. Thinkers like Immanuel Kant thought that human reason could be the source of a universal ethic. Charles Darwin argued that all exists, all that exists is merely the result of a blind evolutionary process. Ethical and religious ideas were merely subjective notions that enable the fittest to survive. Karl Marx persuaded many that all of our thoughts, including our ethical and religious ideas, are simply the product of economic forces. In the early 20th century, Sigmund Freud explained away religion and ethics as a result of infantile needs and projections. The widespread pervasive relativism spread throughout the intellectual world. Nothing left but the only individual arbitrarily creating subjective meaning for himself or herself. (coughs) So in other words, this doesn't matter. The man that wrote this book inspired the people to write this book. The, the, The man that this book talks about from page one to page end means absolutely nothing. It's whatever you feel. It's whatever you think. Because there's no moral standard. There's no moral equivalency. If I get rid of the cross, I get rid of guilt. <laughs> I get rid of salvation. I get rid of all those things because I've got the, I don't need that cross anymore. I'm my own God. Thank you, Oprah. I'm my own Savior. Sider goes on to explain that self-fulfillment for the sovereign individual became the highest value. Pop psychology taught that you should choose whatever you personally felt would contribute to your personal happiness. So whatever you want to do, just go out and do it, and it'll be okay. But what, so, so the couple, that, the family that robbed us or the couple that robbed us last Monday, you know, right, that's just what they needed to do. So, you know, my rights, who cares? And have no Martin Luther King Day. What a great day. My civil rights were upheld. Yeah, I guess. Seems like our system is it, 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 it awards the uh, the person who steals over the person who was stolen from. Craziest system I've ever seen, but yet we're the best system in the world. They say. I'd hate to see the other one. <laughs> oh mercy! The only unpardonable sin is to claim that absolute right and wrong exist, and that a person's personal choices are immoral. So in other words, you don't need this book. You don't need the words in this book and you don't need the God that inspired these words. It's you. You alone are God enough to decide your happiness, sadness, your life. 
So I'll ask you what Dr. Phil says. How's that working for you? How's that working for you? That's kind of what I thought too. Many within the church, however, have fallen victim to this thinking. Christian researcher George Barna says that in a national survey, it shows that only 14% of born-again adults rely on the Bible as their moral compass. And they believe that moral truth is absolute. That's why you may hear some well-intentioned Christians say, I think abortion's wrong. I mean, I could never have one, but who am I to tell someone else what they can do? It's because they have been brainwashed into thinking that there is no absolute truth or truth which is equally applicable to all people at all times in all places. And I say, there is. <coughs> I say there is. There is a truth that is universal and there is a truth that we should follow. And if we'll follow the truth, it'll set us free. <coughs> Satan trying to attack my throat. Well, I'm going to beat him today. Even if I have to write it out for you. Oh, mercy. <clears throat> Next time you come across somebody who tells you that they personally are against abortion, but that they can't tell someone else what to do, follow the logic of their position. And here it is. Ask them why they think it's wrong for them. And they'll probably tell you that it's wrong because it's taking the life of a baby. Then ask them if you can repeat to them what they have just said to you. And then you tell them that they've just said it would be wrong for them to kill a baby, but okay for someone else who wanted to. <laughs> you, you shouldn't steal. I personally don't steal. But I sure don't want to judge you for stealing. So then why am I concerned about whether my alarm system works in my house or not? Why am I concerned that I'm paying homeowner's insurance? Why am I concerned about it? Because they violated my rights, didn't they? To life, liberty, and the pursuit of... Hey, I've heard that before too. Huh. What's that all about? When people call themselves Christians and they bought into this kind of thinking, it's no wonder that we've lost our moral authority in the world. Because people, as I mentioned, expect us to live differently as Christians... At least that book says we should. And yet, we're just like them. So what can be done? What can be done? Well, we can stand as Christians. We can stand against abortion. And we should do everything within our power to see this barbaric practice outlawed in our land. We must extend the mercy and grace of God to those who've been involved in abortion. Whether it's a young woman who has had an abortion or a young man who convinced his girlfriend to have one or a doctor who has performed them or a nurse who assisted, we must remember that Jesus shed His blood to forgive and provide forgiveness of sin. Abortion is no worse in God's mind than any other sin. He will forgive anyone who comes to Him in repentance and seeks forgiveness. And as His body here on earth, we must be messengers of His mercy and His forgiveness. Let me then suggest several areas that I believe we as Christians can and should have an impact on our culture and the laws concerning abortion. First of all, we need to remember that we're salt and light. The primary way that we as individuals and we as a church are going to change our culture is through the witness we give to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I'm not talking merely about evangelism, although evangelism and winning of souls and what's going on to turn our country around. I'm talking about witnessing in the sense of how we demonstrate the difference Jesus makes in our life. I want you to be able to quote book, chapter, and verse. But I would rather you stand up and just talk about the faith you have in God and the difference your life is now than what it used to be. There's the testimony. Especially if they know you back then and they know you now. (laughs) There ought to be a marked difference. Jesus tells us to confess Him before men, but to confess means that we, much more than just speaking the words, it means living our lives and how we do it. And there's aspects of our life that we're still working on. We're still works in progress. We're an imperfect group of people. Amen. Welcome to church. Welcome to River Oaks. We're works in progress. We haven't made it yet. We haven't arrived yet. We shoot our mouth off when we shouldn't. We say things we shouldn't ought to say. Never. <laughs> we get angry over stuff that doesn't amount to a hill of beans. We make mountains out of molehills. We shove elephants under the carpet and don't see the pile that we have to climb over when we go out. Because that's what we do as Christians. We just smile and walk around. And then when we don't do that, we upset people because we talk to them. We say things we shouldn't say. Let's be Ephesians 4. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but such as is for the building up of the moment, for edifying the body in Christ. I can turn on the TV and get enough of the other garbage. But we've got to confess Him, not only with our mouth, but how we live. And, and when we do that, when we understand that our relationship with God and how we demonstrate that publicly really personifies what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and then glorify your Father which is in heaven through the good works we do. Amen. And, you know, when you do good, sometimes you get slapped in the face, don't you? Tammy was telling me at the works, works for family services downtown, and a guy came in strung out on cocaine, said he needed to talk to his counselor, and that person wasn't there. So the another one said, hey, I'll help you. And the guy said, now i got to have some water. She gets up to go get him water, and while she, while she does that, he grabs her purse, steals everything in the purse, and bolts out the door. Because all he's doing is trying to hock stuff to get more drugs. But, I mean, it happened in a split second, just like that. Just like that. Can you trust anybody? Oh, be careful there. Be careful there. The second thing that uh, Christians can do is that we should let our voice be heard. We should be salt and light, but then we need to let our voice be heard. Uh, And that can be applied in many ways. We should be advocates of life in every area where God speaks to us and where we have influence. I would encourage you to uh, pick up a book, Pro-Life 101, by Scott Klusendorf. Boy, I never could get his name right. Klusendorf. Uh, Amazon, you can find it. Pro-Life 101. Great little book. And it'll give you some great ideas. And also give you a lot of information. But God may put in our position and, and across our lives young women that find themselves pregnant out of wedlock. A friend or a co-worker may know that you're a Christian to seek your counsel and ask you whether abortion is wrong. And boy, here's your chance. Here's your chance to, to share with them. Be prepared to answer. If you don't remember any other passage, remember Psalm 139. That's all you need to remember. Jeremiah 1.5 in bad. But remember these things because God has something waiting for us. You should let your voice be heard through your vote. 
You see, we still have the freedom to vote here. Haul your carcass out of, out of your house and go vote on voting day. It behooves you to know who to vote for. Study. Know who they are. Uh, I, I will never tell you who to vote for, but what I'm going to say to you is pray a lot before you go. Seek God's direction in your life. Know that if that person is a believer, you know, you'll email them, write them, because in election year, they'll, they'll get you back to you because <laughs> your vote counts to them because it can only take one vote to sway the whole thing. So, you know, re remember that, that you've got the power in the, in the uh, voting booth <clears throat> to help straighten some things out. Proverbs 14.34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So it behooves us to know who we're voting for and why they're wanting to run. And then we need to get involved. It's one thing to say that abortion's wrong and, well, we ought to be helping people. But what are we doing about it? Cooks and Hills used to have a, a home for unwed mothers. The government made them stop it. I still am in admiration of the church in uh, Kansas and a uh, little, little bitty town uh, in Kansas that uh, the church runs about 2,000, but it's in a town of about seven, 800. So people from all the counties surrounding County drive into this church. But they decided to do something about this. So what they did is that they got hold of uh, the lawyers in, in their church and in the state of Kansas and worked out the system where they would become adoptees of the babies of the, of the girls bearing these children. These children can be brought to this church from all over the country. They come and they live in Kansas, so that makes them a resident. And once they're a resident, then the families, and also the girls live with the family who's going to adopt the baby. And so they help her through the whole process. They're with her there through the birthing and everything. And then they adopt that baby, and the girl goes back home, usually they're 16, 17, 18 years old. Something happened, but they're encouraged to keep the baby. The other one that I know of is in Wichita, Kansas, where... Uh, uh, George Tiller practiced abortion, abortion mill in, in Wichita, Kansas. Now, how he was killed was wrong. It'll be as wrong today as it was, yesterday as it was today. The man was in church, and a guy walks into church and shoots him dead in the foyer of the church. And he said, well, I've saved a lot of babies. Maybe. Maybe. But to take a life for a life never is right. Never's right. I didn't agree with George Tiller and his methods. I didn't. He would, he would abort babies in a, a month to be born. A week to be born, he would abort that baby. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a terrible thing to think of. But Joe Wright in the Central Church in Wichita, Kansas, said, you know what, we're going we're gonna to fight against this. So they went next door to his clinic. It's in a house. They went next door and bought the house. They made a crisis pregnancy center, funded, staffed by the church. And so the sidewalk, when they see women drive up to Tiller's place, or used to, they would have a sign up front that said, there is a choice, there is an option. We'd love to talk to you. And they, they report that hundreds of young women would walk over to ask, what is the option? And they would tell them. And they also set up abortion uh, where they could uh, adopt the uh, kids and so forth. So you see, it's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to get involved in it. And we've got crisis pregnancy centers right here in Tulsa. We've got crisis outreach places here in Tulsa. And we ought to be about the business of trying to reach out to them. 
And I'm going to do some more investigation and see what we can do as a church to help them. Because I know they run uh, diaper drives and all that kind of stuff. And then we can just haul, you know, cases of diapers down to them. Whatever we can do. Just every little thing, right, can make a difference. Uh, uh, yes. That's all right. There you go. That's Lifeway Bookstore over there off of 169 and 71st. All that I've been trying to say, I've captured for you in a video. Let's look at this and then we'll finish up. you this morning 
to redeem us. We all make mistakes. Or we all make uh, bad life choices. But the best news of all <clears throat> is that you love us. And you want to redeem us, to restore us, to heal us. But God, we have to take responsibility for our actions. We have to take responsibility for our choices. <clears throat> and we've got to quit blaming other people. And God, there are always consequences for choices we make. Some good, some bad, depends on the choice. And I know the greatest choice that any person can make in their entire life will be that choice to let Jesus be the master of their life. So God, today, provide the healing, the restoration, the redemption, if there's anybody here seeking it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to have Don Baker here at the front as our elder here today. And so if you have a decision to make of any kind, would you come as we stand and sing? It's a great song. I'm giving you my heart. It's all that is within. I lay it all down for the sake of you, my Laying down my rights, I'm giving up my pride for the promise of new life. And I surrender all to you, all to you. And I count it all as lost for the sake of knowing you, the glory of your name, to know the lasting joy in sharing in your pain. And I surrender all to
Oh, hope your, hope your uh, time today has been good. We're glad you're here. On the back uh, table are some invite cards, uh, Once Upon a Marriage, starting in February. Please take some of these and hand them out to folks. There's a map and stuff on the back, so I want to encourage you in that. Um, again, we put in the uh, budget for 2011, so you can see that. If there's any questions, be sure and see Don uh, or Mick uh, and ask them questions. Uh, they'll be glad to answer those for you. I've also put an insert in uh, about uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and so uh, there's some uh, websites you can look at, some additional information if you're interested in that. I want to call your attention to the holiday offering, still raising funds for that, and if you are feeling led to uh, be a part of that, we'd love for you to. Also, the fifth Sunday Sing is coming up next Sunday night at 6 o'clock at the Mission Christian Church in Sand Springs, and uh, we will take a group from here, if you want to just drive out, that's fine. If you want to ride out, uh, be here about uh, 5.20 uh, to leave. So uh, it'll be a great time of fellowship, and they have a little uh, refreshments after the, after the singing. So it's always good. All right. Um, Wednesday night is John 3.16 night. We've had a bunch of you sign up for that, so uh, we should be overloaded with that and uh, grateful for you and your willingness to come. Uh, Kim is rearranging the Wednesday night thing, so now we'll have some kids going. So we should have a big crowd down there at John 3.16, which will be fine because they'll be hungry and ready for somebody to help them. And uh, the CIY Believe Conference is coming up 4th and 5th of February, and uh, we've just got uh, a lot on the plate, lots going on. Any other announcements? I've overlooked anybody. Sunday night small group right here, 6.30. Right here. Master Life was going to be in tonight, but, the, but my books didn't come in. So we'll do that the following Sunday, and we'll have to meet probably for lunch after church. And uh, I'll provide lunch since it's my mess up, and uh, we will uh, have lunch and do our study uh, next Sunday afternoon or around the lunchtime. And that'll be great. So I want to encourage you that way. Jeff? We'll take you yeah, If you want to ride down to John 316, just be here to leave uh, by 530. So be here at 528. <laughs> and don't be late. All right. Any other announcements? Anybody? Let's stand. And uh, Don Baker has our closing prayer. Following that, Phyllis is going to come and lead us in. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Amen? Brother Don.